Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. Stream limited series Apples Never Fall, starring Annette Bening and Sam Neill, and The Tattooist of Auschwitz, based on the best-selling novel. Plus, TV movie Mr. Monk's Last Case and the semi-animated In the Know from Mike Judge and Zach Woods. Finally, head to the Highlands with Alan Cumming in the hit competition series The Traitors. Peacock is your consideration destination this Emmy season. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. It is Monday, December 12th. It may sound cliche, but Hollywood is still a town of power moves. Who's up? Who's down? My deal's bigger than your deal. My agent called me back faster than your agent did. Craig, I'm still waiting for your agent to call me back. <laughs> the, the ultimate power move is the flex. Take the original Avatar. Everyone said it was going to be a disaster. Jim Cameron could never replicate the fluke of Titanic becoming the biggest movie of all time. Then Avatar outgrossed Titanic. Huge flex. In sports, it's when Tom Brady left the Patriots and immediately won a Super Bowl with Tampa and without Bill Belichick. Huge flex. Something like the Discovery executives taking over Warner Media this year in April. Not really a flex because the whole Warner Brothers Discovery thing hasn't gone great so far. There's actually a lot of bad outcomes in entertainment this year. The whole town is kind of reeling. But not today. These are the flexes. The power moves with great outcomes, at least for whoever's doing the flexing. We've got Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg here, and we're going to count them down one by one. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Lucas, welcome to our Flexes of the Year podcast. Uh, what was your biggest flex of the year? My flex of the year, and this one's a no-brainer, has got to be Tom Cruise insisting on a theatrical release for Top Gun Maverick. This is a movie that the powers that be in the height of the pandemic at CBS Viacom, now Paramount Global, wanted to sell off to a streaming service. Now, it didn't really ever get to the point where they were in negotiations because Cruz put his foot down, but he insisted on a theatrical release. Comes out in May, grosses $1.48 billion worldwide. The domestic total, $718 million, is the, big, the fifth biggest of all time. International is about the same. Uh, this has got to be, I mean, establishes, reestablishes Cruz as the biggest star in Hollywood. Uh, Got to be the flex of the year, right? I, I'm I'm with you on that. Yeah, I mean, there's. Oh, there's you agree? Yeah, I'm gonna have my own because we're here to debate things. But I think it's unquestionably the biggest one of the year. All right, so I have three runners up that I think we should discuss because I could have gone with any of these for my flex of the year, and I'm imagining you may not agree with all of them. You're going to do all three of yours right now? No, no, no. I'm going to say the first runner-up, and then okay. you can weigh in with yours. Because I think the first runner-up for Flex of the Year is the Bobicide. 
Bob Iger taking over for Bob Chapek at Disney. He sat there lying in wait, gave up the throne three years ago, did not take another big job, did not do another, you know, buying a sports team or some of these other things people thought he was going to do. He sat there. He did the meetings. He was still meeting with investors, still had his relationships with the board. And then when the moment came and the call came in from the board, desperate to get rid of the guy in the chair, Iger said, you know what? I'm going to flex. I'm going to do it. I think this runs counter to your definition of a flex, which is this whole situation was a disaster. And so it's hard for me to see it as a positive outcome when, one, having to defenestrate the, your hand-picked successor reminds everyone that your greatest failing as CEO was that you sucked at succession and your ego got in the way of you thinking anyone else could do the job. True. And two... You have to come back and do the job. You could have, you he could have gone off and done something else, right? Legacy secured. Go, go, uh, raise a bunch of money to invest. Go buy something. Go run a sports team. Whatever it is. Uh, and instead, he's got to come back. Um, and look, maybe he wa secretly wanted to do it all along, but this whole thing destabilizes the company, reflects poorly on the company, reflects poorly on the board, reflects poorly on him. You know, come back in a couple of years, and if he's totally turned things around, he can take another victory lap. But it's hard for me to see this as a positive outcome for anyone right now. I think it reflects poorly on everybody except him. Yeah, the succession thing is a problem, and he did pick this guy, although the board was heavily involved in the pressures of the pandemic, you know, made that happen. But ultimately, the reaction around town was daddy's home. You know, the, the king is back. He's wearing the crown again. Stability. There was an instant stock pop at the company, although they've given some of that back. But I feel like he has his mojo back. He's tweeting. He's accepting awards at charity events. He's saying all the right things in staff meetings. He's, you know, we haven't seen some of his big decisions that he's got to make in 2023. And that will ultimately be the determination as to whether this is a flex or perhaps a, an overreach. But I think this is a flex, and I think it's a huge one. You're not, you're not persuading me. I don't think it makes him look good. All right, so let's go to yours then. Well, you Give me your, uh, uh, your mine, flex. Mine would be, I got, a, I got an email this morning to reinforce it, uh, which is, so my, my flex is about my favorite pop star, Bad Bunny. Oh, here we go. He initially booked a arena tour, which for those that are like less familiar with music, that's playing, you know, basketball arenas, 15 to 20,000 people. That would be a real, that's a really big tour. Harry Styles did an arena tour. Dua Lipa did an arena tour. But the sales for that were strong enough that it convinced him to book a stadium tour on top of that. And so he, as a Latin act, did both an arena tour and a stadium tour in America, singing in Spanish, and it went on to be the highest grossing tour in U.S. music history. That's great. That's good for him. But how do you say that Bad Bunny had the flex of the year when Taylor Swift literally broke Ticketmaster? Well, two things. One, because we'll see if Taylor Swift's tour touches Bad Bunny. She's not going to do as many dates. So my guess is Bad Bunny's numbers will still be higher. And uh, her, two, per, her per ticket is going to be the highest. We'll it's see. His, his tickets are actually very expensive. He, he charged about $200 a pop, at least the, for the arena portion. The other reason I'd say, because this gets back to the fucking Baba side thing. 
The Taylor Swift situation was a disaster. Bad Bunny pulled this off and everybody loves him. Everybody's happy. It goes well. The Taylor Swift situation, yes, she has managed to emerge largely unscathed because she is a master at manipulating these situations. But she made the decision that she needed to sell all on one day, which led to this catastrophe. And so I cannot in any, I cannot in good conscience say that of the big musicians of the year, she is the one who gets the flex of the year. Also, Taylor Swift selling out, absolute no-brainer. She had the biggest tour of the year three or four years ago. Bad Bunny had never sold, and like he he'd never had an arena tour that was that successful. Then going there and having a stadium tour that was bigger than anything Taylor Swift has ever done before is remarkable. All right, so a lot to unpack here. First of all, I think Taylor Swift is loving this. The fact that she exerted such power over the ticket market that it literally broke the site that was assured to her would work and and sell these tickets. She still sold 2 million tickets in a day. Never happened before. Her fans are now suing to break up Ticketmaster, something that the music industry has wanted for, what, 25 years? Don't think it will happen. Don't think her fans will be the ones that, that make it happen. But it certainly caused this to be on the radar of several prominent politicians that are going to take a hard look at Ticketmaster. And yeah, it's unfortunate that some of her her fans are paying $3,000 a ticket on the secondary market. I'm sure she's bummed about that. But if you're Taylor Swift and you position yourself as the most powerful figure in music, this whole debacle, scandal, whatever it is, ultimately nets out positive for you. And it's a huge flex. Of course. All right. So then my, my next flex of the year is going to Apple. And Apple does a lot of things, but something they did this year in Hollywood, I think, did not get enough attention. They beat Netflix to the Best Picture Oscar. And this is something that I think will be overshadowed from this year's Oscars because of the Will Smith slap. But it's a huge deal that CODA won Best Picture. Netflix has been campaigning for Oscars for years. They have Netflix has 116 total Oscar nominations in its history. It has 16 wins. It's won everything from Best Documentary a couple times. They got Best Director for Alfonso Cuaron and Roma and uh, Jane Campion for Power of the Dog. It has seven Best Picture nominations, but it has zero Best Picture wins. And as you and I both know, Ted Sarandos at Netflix is obsessed with winning Best Picture. Apple comes in, they buy a movie at Sundance, pay $25 million. Everyone's like, what? You're paying $25 million for a movie at Sundance? Never been done before. They sneak in there. All of a sudden, everyone's loving Coda. It wins Best Picture with probably a tenth of the effort that Netflix put into that campaigns that year. And it's a huge flex. Hard to push back on it much. Netflix and Amazon, like like Apple, had had previously gone into Sundance and basically tried to you know, buy awards uh, through through festival darlings and had at best mixed results. Amazon had a little better success than Netflix with it, other than Netflix thrived with the documentaries. You know, I guess the question I have going forward, and I, you're, you're right that it's something that all the other companies want, is like how meaningful it ends up being for Apple. I do think it it allowed them to buy some movie projects that other that they might not have otherwise, just because they could they demonstrated that they could put a movie in in contention for awards and people love that. Well, it gets to the larger question of what Apple's even doing in the content business. I mean, you could argue that 
$25 million on an Oscar campaign is, is worth it. If Tim cook gets to talk about it on an earnings call. Yeah. But you know, that, that, that's a different debate. I just think from the pure Oscars campaign perspective, that is the coup of the century is Apple coming in and becoming the first streamer to win the best picture Oscar. Yeah. No arguments. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. All right, give me your next one. So my flex of the year goes to the initially Warner Media and then Warner Brothers Discovery leakers. Uh, for, <laughs> is so this, is this like an Edward Snowden uh, shout out here? Initially, initially, they take down Jeff Zucker, somebody who had been in uh, a figure of tremendous power. Everyone assumed that he was a sure thing to survive the merger with Discovery because he was tight with David Zaslav. He ran, he ran CNN. Yeah, the the former head of CNN, beloved by the talent there, but has largely either failed or struggled in almost every big media job he's had over the last 20 years and yet somehow keeps rising until this. And people leaked deals or leaked uh, information about, uh, you know, an, an affair that he, a longstanding affair he'd had with one of his deputies. By the way, an affair that, that everybody, everybody knew in media about. knew about. Yes, but... And we were joking about this affair at a... Hollywood Reporter Party literally like seven years ago. That plus some things about his kind of relationship with Chris Cuomo on air host, who was the brother of then Governor Andrew Cuomo, leads to Jeff Zucker being ousted before the, the deal with Discovery can conclude. And basically, since Warner Brothers and Discovery came together, people at the company have been leaking things left and right about what's happening with management. I think it has totally destabilized it at times this year. Not sure it was good for the company, but great for the press, great for the public. And I'm just giving them the the, the shout out. So who do you believe are the leakers? I can't get into that. Really? Yeah. I mean, are they leaking to you? You can get into it if they're not leaking to you. I actually didn't write a lot about the Zucker story. So in so fairness. Who do you th I think they're disgruntled CNN people, right? I mean, this is a news organization that lives and dies off of people leaking them information. And then they have a major story going on in their back in their backyard where their beloved leader is being, you know, trounced on. Uh, maybe they're link they're leaking information about that. The question I have is who's leaking the anti-Zucker stuff? Oh, you mean you mean the CNN people are leaking all the current things? Yeah. Not, yeah. Oh, yeah, because they're upset about. Yeah, and they're pissed off at Chris Licht, who took over and is cutting and is, you know, marginalizing people that had power. I'm sure that's what's going on. The question I have is, who leaked the original Zucker stuff and yeah. wanted to get him out? Because there was some politics going on there where Jason Kylar, the head of Warner Media, was not a big fan of Zucker. He had taken some power away from Zucker, and they were not getting along. And then, boom, before Kylar knows he's going to be out, some of this stuff is surfaced. So yeah. people have pointed to his office. I, I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> Jason and people loyal to him is one category. A lot of times in these situations, it's a lawyer who feels that someone misbehaved and decides that they need to follow their conscience because there had been some investigations happening. Um, or it, and it, and it could be people who 
who didn't like Jeff and wanted to finally see him go. All right. That's a good one. I have, um, I have another sort of corporate flex of the year and it relates to a deal. The, cause you're, I mean, the, the, the Warner brothers discovery deal has been kind of a disaster so far. So you can't have a flex involved. No, in po that. no positives, no yeah. positives so far in that one. However, another questionable deal of the year, I think does have a flex involved. And that is the decision that Amazon made to pay $8.45 billion for the MGM film and television studio that happened in March. And the flex of the year is by Kevin Ulrich who is a hedge fund dude, has, he has Anchorage Capital, which had owned MGM for almost a decade, I believe, long time. He came to Hollywood, was a total inexperienced dude. It's kind of a, a typical story. He was super rich, and he had his hedge fund buy into MGM. He came to LA, he went to parties, he hired himself a publicist to arrange meetings with actors and actresses, got himself invited into the Academy, had a fantastic time, and then most people assumed he would lose his shirt. But he found a buyer. He found Amazon willing to pay $8.45 billion for this asset that has been leveraged and sold and resold. And the library has been licensed off and remade and remade again. And he found a buyer. So huge flex by Kevin Ulrich. Huge flex by him, especially because for a long time, it seemed like they just were not going to get a deal. Um, and the other, I guess the other thing to, to keep in mind about it, which which doesn't uh, diminish what what he accomplished, but the deal itself has been sort of a mess ever since the day Amazon announced it. Um, yeah, explain that. I mean, it, it has not gone great. They bought this company, which to to Matt, uh, as Matt said, had a lot of lot of rights tangled up. Just it, it wasn't everything that they wanted it to be. They almost immediately wrote down the value of the asset. They brought, they got it, they bought it ostensibly, at least in part, to boost their film business because they're, they, you know, for all the crap people have given Netflix for its, its movie business, at least Netflix makes a lot of movies. Amazon has, has mostly not made a lot of movies. But then Mike DeLuca and Pam Abdi, who've been running the Amazon film business, immediately becomes the clear MGM that, film business. sorry, the, the MGM film business immediately becomes clear that they don't fit. They leave, they go to run the Warner Brothers studio. Amazon's been looking for someone to run its movie business all year, has had no success with that. Mark Burnett, who's sort of the, you know, the very famous TV producer aligned with Donald Trump. He's part of the MGM deal. He's since been washed out. Basically, most of the MGM leadership is gone. Amazon's restructured its TV department at least once this year, could have been twice. Um, and everybody in the Hollywood- year, there's, is, still, there's still 20 days left in the year. They may restructure again. Uh, and everyone in Hollywood is a little bit confused about what's going on over there. All right, that's that's a good summary, and I, I just think the fact that Ulrich was able to unload this asset after literally the his uh, the guy running it wanted to sell the company like five years before, and he said no and pushed the guy out for trying to get into sale talks. Gary Barber and everyone was like, "What are you doing? Sell now!" And he waited and he waited and he got the deal. So good for you know the money wins as they say on Succession. Yeah. Uh, mine is, mine is a little bit inside, inside baseball, but seeing as you just picked Calvin, Calvin Ulrich, I think I'm okay with this. So mine is Netflix CFO, Spencer Newman, um, okay. who is the primary reason at this point I can tell that Netflix has an advertising business. Wait, it's not the fact that the stock has dropped 50 to 60% in a year. Oh, of course there are extenuating circumstances, but this is the one guy who'd been pushing Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos to embrace advertising basically since he got there. 
Oh, so you're saying that he, it was a, it's a told you so moment. Correct. Um, so he'd been saying, you need to do advertising, you need to do advertising, you need to do advertising. Reed Hastings, Ted Sarandos, didn't want to do it. Reed in particular thought, let's keep it clean. Let's just go ad-free. This is our identity. Then the stock drops, as you point out, although they'd been talking about it before then. They'd been talking about it as soon as, well, as soon as they start, saw growth slowing late 2021, Spencer Newman finally gets his his bosses on board and they rolled out an advertising service faster than Disney. No, I, I, we'll see if it works. I think it's sort of impossible to imagine it doesn't work. Um, and so, yeah, it's more of a told you so. I think it's hard to say anyone flexed at a company that has lost half its value in a year. So I, I will question that one. But I agree that they are now listening to him in a way that maybe they didn't for a long time. All right, my flex here uh, in the financial world, I got to give it to Daniel Katz and David Fenkel, whose names you definitely do not know, but they are the proprietors of A24, which is the independent studio we've talked about on the show before. And they did a capital raise this year that valued the company at $2.5 billion, which for a small independent outfit is pretty good. And that was before... Their movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, hit $100 million at the box office, which has never been done before by that company. And it just cleaned up at the Golden Globes. And it is expected to be a contender for Best Picture this year, which would be the second A24 winner after Moonlight. I just think it's a huge flex in an independent film business that is just reeling, absolutely getting destroyed by the pandemic and the slow return to box to the box office and the fact that the streaming companies are now making their own movies. I just think that A24's trajectory is pretty remarkable. And this year was a huge flex. I struggled to see it as a flex when they raised a bunch of money at a time where everyone, capital was still cheap. Everyone was raising money at insane valuations or selling for lots of money. And they are, had an established brand. It didn't, I mean... I hear what you're saying about the indie. You film think business. it should be worth more than 2.5 billion? Is what you're saying? No, I'm just saying I don't think it was. I I don't think it was that hard to raise money then. <laughs> no, they could have raised money at any point, but the fact that they got and, that, and if they wanted to, and if they wanted to, they could probably find they could probably sell for a bunch of money. Maybe not for quite as much as they want. I just don't know that there was it was it was a challenge. But look at all of these other companies. Do you think any of these indie outfits like Neon or? You know, even the studio divisions like a Sony Classics. Do you think they're worth any any amount? No, because A A twenty four has done the best job of building a brand, but that's like not a that's like a years long process. It's not like they all of a sudden were like, "Hey, I'm A twenty four. They they've been A twenty four for a while. It's the only movie. It's it's the only it's the only movie studio other than Disney that has a brand. Obviously, on a much 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 smaller scale. Um, but like people buy a 24 merch. When's the last time you Craig, saw anyone Craig, in a Craig's, Craig's buying the $50 candles. When's the last time you saw anyone wearing like a Paramount Pictures t-shirt? Yeah, no, it's true. Okay. So I have a couple others. I, I want to call them, you know, they're smaller flexes, but uh, we'll call them micro flexes. I don't know what, what you want to say, but the, I think it was a flex for Trevor Noah to drop the mic and leave the daily show when he did. This is a guy who has been torn between his nightly TV gig and his very lucrative touring business. Um, he wants to do other things. He went to Paramount Global and said, I'd like to work less. I'd like to reconfigure my schedule. They said, yeah, we're not doing that. He told nobody. And then he announced on the show that he was leaving. 
just dropped the mic and kind of left them in the lurch. Uh, not a not the nicest thing in the world to do to your partners, but he did it. And I think that he is going to ultimately be super successful outside of The Daily Show. He's still not even 40 years old. And he'll tour. He's making tens of millions of dollars on this current world tour. And it's just the 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 lure of the late night gig for your career is not the same anymore. I think this guy will ultimately get another show. He'll do some John Oliver style show where he can work 20 weeks a year and then tour and do the other stuff he wants to do. And I think it was a huge flex to leave. More than anything, it was a flex to leave the way that he did it. You have to wonder why someone of his uh, of of his star power at this point wanted to still do it. To your point about what the meaning of late night is, you know, he was already a pretty big comedian when he got the job, but popular in other places. The job put him on another level, and he didn't have much. He didn't have he, he didn't have a lot of room to grow anymore. So, I'm with so you. You agree? I agree. I, I okay. forgot. I, I have a. I have a. I have another one. Small. Also a smaller one, uh, which is making and releasing Black Panther without Black Panther. <laughs> How is that a flex? Obviously, the sequel was going to happen. Why? And it's not. And it's not doing as well. Your your star dies, and it obviously is going to happen. You think if if Tom Cruise had died, they would make another Top Gun? Well, that's different. But if I mean, look at what happened with. Fast and Furious. Yeah, Paul that's Walker an, died. On, it's an ensemble cast, though. Black Panther was very much. It was Chadwick Boseman was the focal point of that movie. They had written the whole script. Uh, Ryan Coogler had had mapped out the whole sequel with him in it, and had to start from from kind of day one. I take your point that like it's not doing quite as well as the first one, but that's no, been the true. first one grossed one. But that's but that's been true of every single sequel this year for the most part. Minions: Rise of Gru also didn't do as well as Minions, but it's still considered a hit. That's true, but I do think the goodwill associated with the first Black Panther, if it had come back and you know he had been in it. It probably would have done on par, I think, but it's not even. It's gonna. It's at about seven hundred sixty-seven million right now worldwide. Wakanda Forever and the original Black Panther did one point three billion, so it's like barely more than half right now. And I think it will ultimately get to about eight or nine, but not the same. And I think, I mean, I don't know how that's a, a flex. I mean, the the laws of franchise management of today's movie business dictate that the sequel to Black Panther happens. But my point is, this was going to happen, and they did it in a way creatively that I think worked. They yeah. had a really nice tribute to him, and the movie, I thought it worked. I thought it was good. I mean, the reviews were good. I think Coogler did a great job. It was a little long, but whatever. And I think that's a big creative... I mean, I guess the, the flex... You just made my creative. point for me. Yeah, I think the flex, is, the flex is a creative flex. It's not like this is a business flex. Like, obviously, this is going to happen. Well... I, I think in that case, creative and business are, are, are intertwined. So, yeah. Okay, that's the show. Lucas, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Matt. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, the Golden Globe nominations this morning. Did you catch them? Yeah, a lot of love for movies that haven't come out yet. Things <laughs> I've never seen. Well, they have Banshees of Inishirin in there. That's the top vote getter. Uh, you and I saw that together. I that was really it. good. A lot of nominees for Babylon, Avatar. Yeah. Wednesday that just came out. I haven't seen any of these yet. Yeah. The uh, the big thing with the Globes is that they are back on NBC. 
After a year of being banished, they had some internal problems with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. They were criticized for not having any black members. A lot of the ethical issues that the Globes have struggled with over the years, giving awards to famous people to get them at the show. That was highlighted. A lot of the publicists around Hollywood didn't like them because they exerted control and made people show up to press conferences when they didn't want to. Uh, that has, for more or less, I guess, gone away. Some of the publicists that have been critical came out today and supported the Globe noms. And my prediction today has nothing to do with the nominations themselves. It's about the show. And I believe that most of the nominees are going to attend the Globes this year, despite the scandal. Um, maybe it will be a little bit fewer than in previous years, but I think the star power of the Golden Globes is back. Why? Just because it's too hard to say no to an award? I think there's a couple things. First of all, obviously, vanity. People like getting an award. They like to you know, support the people who honor them. Um, I think the fact that the publicists have kind of let their foot off the gas here and made it okay for people to come back. The Globes have initiated a number of pretty significant reforms over the last year or two. They brought in a whole bunch more diverse members. They banned gifts. People used to give them elaborate gifts. They banned travel you know, that studios would pay for. Um, they still haven't resolved the press conference issue, but they've done a lot of things that are considered more talent-friendly, and they've done it for this purpose, to get the publicists back on board. And once the publicists are okay, the studios and the networks want the Globes because that's the second reason. This is a crisis moment for the kinds of awards movies that get nominated. Nobody is going to see these movies in theaters. They want to be able to promote them on a platform. The Globes noms come out right before the holiday season. The holiday movie-going season is hugely important for these smaller movies. And if you can get a commercial out there that says, you know, winner of eight Golden Globe nominations for a movie like Banshees, that's meaningful to audiences to get them to go see it over the holidays. So there is a direct financial benefit to these studios and networks of being nominated. So I think that's governing ultimately whether people are going to participate. Do you foresee the Globes this year being a success? Like if you had to predict, will the Globes be around in five years? What would you say? Well, this is a one-year deal on NBC. And they got out of a previous long-term deal due to the scandal. And I think the terms of that deal were not favorable to NBC. They were paying a lot of money for a show that was not rating as high as it once did. They did a really interesting thing where they moved the show from Sundays, which is where it traditionally airs, to a Tuesday in January, January 10th. That's going to really hurt the ratings, I think, because... Award shows are Sunday night things. We're used to watching football during the day and then, oh, the Golden Globes are on. I guess I'll check it out. NBC in the past usually would put a football game, a, a playoff game before the Globes to try to juice the numbers that way. And that worked really well in the past. But I, so I think it's going to be tough for people to find the Globes on a Tuesday night and the ratings will suffer. I think the Tuesday move is not a bad move considering Sunday you'd be competing with all the NFL. And then- Well, that's we, what NBC, NBC wanted. They wanted to have a Sunday night football game. And that's much more valuable to NBC. Than, yeah, because it's the last week of the regular season. They're going to flex some, some game to Sunday night. And then Monday is the national championship. You don't want to compete with that. So I think it makes sense. That's what they're thinking is. I just think it's going to be hard to get that traditional award show audience to come over to Tuesday. But you know what? The Oscars have aired on Mondays in the past, and that wasn't a problem. But it's just so hard in linear TV these days. I guess it does air on Peacock as well, but that's a, another whole separate issue. Well, we'll see. I've always liked the Golden Globes. All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Lucas Shaw. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck. And I want to thank you. We'll see you later this week.
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.